this episode. We have our 100th episode. What it is, why we like it, and in what circumstances do we find ourselves telling it. And it was one of those natural experiments that occurred. So guys, has anyone seen the movie Hidden Figures? And they became the first computer programmers that NASA ever had. You mean we can't just look it up now? Go, <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, let's do it. No, 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 let's no. Do let's do it. Pick up. If you have a story that doesn't work, right, don't spend time trying to fix the story. Just get another story. Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, everybody. I'm Sean Callahan. And hi, everybody. I'm Mark Shank. Well, what a, uh, an event. We have our 100th episode. Uh, this is it. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to look back at the stories that we've told and just pick out a few that we find ourselves telling, you know, on a regular basis, and we'll have a chat about those. So that's the, that's the basic plan, uh, and we'll just sort of see how we go. Uh, Mark, what do you reckon? And, you know, we've, we've told so many stories now, well, almost 100, I guess, and out of that 100, you know, what were the stories that drew you back to think, okay, yeah, I tell those ones a few times, actually. Yeah, I, and I, when we first started to have the conversation about the 100th episode, we were going, oh, well, let's use our favourite stories. And uh, I think this is a much better test, you know, the ones that we use most often. So, uh, Well, that's we, right. They've been, they're obviously useful because we use yeah. them, right? Yeah, and so uh, if we talk about what it is, why we like it, and in what circumstances do we find ourselves telling it, then I think we're well on our way. Yeah, let's do that. All right. So my first one is a story that I bumped into uh, back in uh, around 2007. I was working in, uh, sorry, I was coaching a, a senior executive in the government and I walked into his office for a coaching session and Chandani, uh, who was working with us at the time, was with me. And I walked in and he had this big mind map on his whiteboard and in the top left-hand corner, bathroom story. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, ah, so I'm doing this big change and like I've got people, leaders all over the country and they tend to rush, wait, they just tend to rush to the details and it's really annoying people and they're very focused on the technicalities. So bathroom story, a few years ago, my wife and I were doing a renovation and we'd renovated the entire house, loved it. And the last bit was the bathroom, the main bathroom. Um, we'd left it for a few years because we couldn't find the design. Anyway, we finally find a design, we get the builder in and the renovation commences. I head off overseas on a trip about halfway through the renovations, quite a long trip. I come back and uh, on the day, on the Friday, it's due to finish. And my wife, you know, my, I get to the door and my wife rushes the door and opens the door and she grabs me by the hand and we walk down to the bathroom and she throws open the door of the bathroom and I walk in and I look up in the top corner of the bathroom and I can see there's some grout missing and I'm going, Oh my God, what do they call this? This is, this is terrible workmanship. That bloody grout, look at that grout. And anyway, my <laughs> wife grabbed me by the ear, dragged me back out to the front door, said, let's try that again. So we walked back to the bathroom. I walked in and I looked at the bathroom and it was exactly as we wanted it. It was what we pictured. It was wonderful. 
And I then said, and the grout? And she said, yes, they knew you'd want it to be perfect. It was too wet to finish the grout. They'll be back at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning just to do that final little bit of grouting. Anyway, so it was a beautiful renovation. A little while later, I was sitting on the couch having a glass of wine with my wife. And she just looked at me. She said, you don't do that at work, do you? And I realized I did. We have a big urgent thing happening. People would work the entire weekend. They produce a report. I'd come in on Monday morning. And the first thing I do is pick up my red pen and start correcting the report. And he goes, that's how I behaved. And I was looking at the, looking at the grout, not, not at the bathroom. Anyway, so that experience changed me. <laughs> it's such a great story, isn't it? Um, yes. and, and it was he telling, he was obviously telling that in the organization as uh, you know, an, an antidote to that problem, right? Yeah. So he was gathering all of his leaders together as part of this change initiative from all yes. over Australia. And his intention was to start with that story. Right, right. I wonder, I wonder whether he went on to tell other stories and find to tell other stories. Uh, did you ever find out? Or oh, No, I, I don't know about other stories, but I do yeah. know he used that one. And people kept, and, and it just became a metaphor. Of course, uh, yeah. It sounds like you're focused on the grout. Yeah. What about the bathroom? And that was just, it became a, a, a really good metaphor for calling that, sign out, the, the, that kind of technocrat behavior that he was yeah. trying to get rid of. Actually, can I, I remember uh, telling that story um, at a big financial services organization just before we went into this uh, detailed conversation around you know, how to improve things and on the project. And it was so interesting because I told that story at the beginning. It was just almost like I just told it because I'd heard it. There was no real point in me telling it. I just thought, oh, I'll tell that story. So I told it. And it had an amazing impact on that, on that group for the rest of the, uh, the meeting because no one really wanted to be the grout person. You know, it was almost like this, you know, it, it layered some sort of protection, you know, in the room for stopping people from just getting into the nitty gritty and complaining. So there was no complaining in the, in the meeting. It was terrific. Yeah. That's one of the times that I tell it. Yeah, right. When I, sen when I sense that there's conflict. Oh, okay, um, right. Yeah, where there's a lot of different views about something. Yeah. And yep. so I just, ah, oh, just the other day, this, I just was scanning through my story bank and came across this. Anyway, and I generally started with a bit of a joke. You know, I, I, in, my, in my story bank, this is just, it just says Steve Drees, a bathroom story, 2007. Right? And, uh, but importantly, it's, it's about a renovation, not an accident. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, that's good. And um, I mean, what's, I mean, apart from, you know, uh, you know, where you use it, but what, what do you like about it? What's the things oh. that really? Well, I don't know, the visuals of the wife grabbing him by the ear and walking him back to the front door. Yeah, right. That's a nice little image, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think the whole thing is, is, is strong with imagery. Yeah, it's you know, very right too. How many people, you know, have had, done bathroom renovations or some sort of renovation you sort of everyone's had some perhaps some that sort of experience yeah 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 and and you know another bit of renovation you open the door of the bathroom and you walk into the brand new bathroom so for me the very strong imagery and uh the just the emotion of the wife grabbing the the ear and the surprise yeah well, it was a good insight for him yeah yeah. And an important detail of that story is, is the wife asking the question, do you do that at work? 
Yes, uh, that's where he has the little light bulb moment and realizes, mm. uh oh, we have a problem here, Houston. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's a good one. Excellent. Excellent. Well, let's move on to the next story. We've got a few to get through. So um, this one, for me, I, um, I I do like this one. I tell this one. I notice myself telling this this story a bit. And it's actually about, uh, well, New College in Oxford, right? New College is the newest college, but I think it was, you know, founded in the 1600s or something like that. Um, but... Uh, you know, a while back now, the uh, they they noticed that the the dining hall sort of beams across the those beautiful beams across the you know, ceiling of the dining hall um, were rotting. The timbers were rotting, and so you know they got someone up there to have a look, and it turned out that there was beetles had attacked those massive timbers. And yeah, I guess it's a function of time, isn't it? Well, it's going to happen, right? It's absolutely going to happen. And they were pulling their hair out as to what to do. How do you replace beams that size, you know, these big oak beams? And as the professors were sort of asking around, uh, someone sort of said, well, why don't we talk to our forester? And, you know, they looked at each other. We have a forester, you know. Oh, yeah, we have a forester, you know. We don't see him very much here in Oxford, but, you know, we have way out in, in the, you know, sort of hinterlands is, is his work and his forests. So they go out there and, um, you know, he sort of looked at these academics and he said, oh, I wondered when you were going to arrive, you know, but we're all ready. We're all ready for the dining room hall um, beams. And uh, apparently they planted these uh, oak trees like 400 years ago. You know, and there'd been generations of foresters looking at this thing, looking after this thing, in order uh, to uh, you know sort of replace the the beams as they need it. Um, there's sort of like a, a new update to this, right? And that is, um, you know, of course we all saw Notre Dame burn down. What was it two years ago now? Yeah, just before the you know pandemic, and. Of course, they're going through the construction. Sheena and I were in, in Paris, I think, in 2019, and you know they're doing their big rebuild. But the big problem has is the oak beams. Uh, they can't find, um, you know, oak beams in France that would might do the job. And guess what? They might have to go to England to get the oak beams. Oh, I can see there's a problem now. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a problem, I think, in itself. Like they so anyway, might have to use English oak rather than French oak. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I don't know if they'll actually come at that, but the um, yeah. Anyway, so that's a little story, and I just I just love this idea of someone having that level of forethought, that level of patience. You know, totally off the radar of the centre of what that organisation does. Um, but as, you know, in terms of risk management, I suppose, you know, it would never happen these days, but it's an, it's an interesting old and worldy sort of story, isn't it, for um, it is. that it concept. Is. And, and I wonder, you know, I, I would, it just caused me to wonder, what, what happened? Did they plant new oak trees for the next, you know, for when the, these, this, this round of, of beams start to uh, get, get infested? Uh, in preparation yeah, that's right. You would years. think they would double down on that tactic. I mean, you know, oh. give them the work for them, but maybe it's too well, costly the, in this day of, you know, cost cuttings and uh, and and that's the thing because the um, uh, I've been reading 
well, actually listening to uh, Ian McGilchrist's book on The Master and His Emissary, which is about the rise of the left brain dominance in the Western world and how it influences so many things. And from a left brain perspective, you'd get rid of him, right? Because it's just, you know, that's a cost and relatively short term. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested to see what would, what would happen there. Yes, who knows? And it might be, uh, you know, it's one of those stories that was told quite some time ago. So I'm not too sure whether it's still be interesting to knock on a new college's door and still and see if they still have a forester and, a, you know, a patch of trees somewhere that's been ready for the next uh, dining hall update. But yeah, I think it'd be uh, interesting to have a chat with that forester. Oh, I think so, yeah. But, uh, you know, this, this story for me, I, I, I pull it out when just people are thinking about planning and, and maintaining knowledge, you know, in organizations and, and, you know, sort of the long-term approaches that can be useful to have. I mean, we're sort of seeing today, you know, with everything digitized, how so much of it, there's been such a long period between the analog world we had in our workplaces to the digital world. And that period in between where so much has been lost, right? Because it just, you know, archives around the world must be just shaking their head going, oh, my God, you know, you wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now with that, that big uh, release of letters, for example, that were sent between the Australian Governor-General and the Queen back and forwards around the, the sacking of Gough Whitlam. You know, that wouldn't happen now with, with email, I would imagine. You know, just no. it just couldn't occur. Yeah. But anyway... That's a, that's uh, my my first one that I thought I'd pull out. What's your next one, Mark? Cool. So my next one is one uh, a, that I use regularly in situations where there's change management, uh, oh, yeah. some sort of change happening, and just to reinforce that change can be really hard. And this is the story of the backwards bike. There's a, a, a show in America that's. Uh, this engineer is it's like all this really cool engineering stuff. And one of his technicians took a bike and re-welded the handle of the bike so that when you turned the handle to the right, and you'd expect the bike to go right, right normally, he just put a cog in so that it went left. Right. So the bike went the opposite to, way to, which, to which you're expecting. And they made a bit of a bet and the uh, the engineer whose name eludes me right now, he went, yeah, of course I can do that. Well, it took him something like 50 days to learn how to ride that bike, that, that backwards bike. He, and, and when I say learn, like he could not go more than a couple of meters without falling off. Right. Yeah, yeah. It was his brain was wired that the, you know, that the bike went a certain way and that he, and he just, could not get out of that way of thinking. And he was very surprised because when it did, it wasn't a gradual uh, adoption. It was kind of, oh, there it is. Oh, is that and right? That's it. Yeah, it just happened very quickly. Huh. And, and one minute he couldn't write it, and the next minute he could write it. How and interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, and the amazing how fast, sorry, how long it took him to learn how to ride that bike. And, you know, it's not that much different, really, much. Uh, his son took about, he said, took his son about eight hours. 
how old's his son? Ten ish. Young, a young fella. Young, young, young fellow with a very plastic brain still. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and 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 again with the son, it was the same. It was it was just it was like oh there it is. Yeah. So it went from couldn't couldn't do it to could do it reasonably quickly after all the all the falling off. It's interesting you say that. I, I'm glad you've mentioned that because I think storytelling, learning storytelling is like that, right? I think people yeah. go from. Don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. And then it's like the, I say it's like a light switch, you know, it's like boom and it's on and they get yep. it. And so there must yep. be some little rewiring that's going on there to just get you in the habit of, you know, sharing a story to make a point. Right. Yeah. Now that's really good. Cause I think that story can be a, a useful metaphor for people who are trying to learn storytelling yeah. because it, it is very much like that. No, I don't get it. I don't get it. Oh, there it is. And it's, as you say, like a light switch. So and there's some uh, I video. now have a new application for it. And isn't there video on YouTube of people, you know, riding yeah. backwards yep. bike? Yep. So that would be a nice, it, nice uh, thing to show, right? Yeah. So uh, so that, that particular uh, one was uh, episode 40 of Anecdotally Speaking. So the story itself and the link to the video is there and it's well worth watching. <laughs> that's good where else do you use it like what's the what's the time you, you, you so you said you mainly around change and what yeah, change is yeah. hard and yeah etc yeah so a, a lot of the uh the uh, our clients are going through uh, uh changes and either strategic changes or they're trying as part of the storytelling leaders, we kind of bump into more operational level changes. Yep. And the reality is change is hard. Yep. And so I pull out that story, both for them to realize that they can't just make an assertion at somebody and say, you know, you need to change and expect them to change because, you know, as the bike backwards bike shows, it's very hard to change a behavior once we've got it locked in. Of course, the, uh, the simple, um, if you like experience you can give them is just the old folding arms trick, right? So you just get people to fold their arms and then say to them, okay, now fold them the other way, you know, and it just feels so weird and uncomfortable and, mm. you know, you can't keep it there for very long. And it's the same thing. Your brain's not wired to fold your arms in that way, particularly you can do it, but you really have to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Excellent. The backwards bike, hey? The backwards bike. Yep. I also enjoyed that we did a, a, a version of that for one of the newsletters and I did that uh, riding a bike. Uh, it was not a backwards bike, by the way. You rode it backwards? Uh, I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I also, uh, in, in coaching, coaching leaders where they're going through some, some big change, uh, they've found that story incredibly useful. Yeah, no, it sounds like a good one. And, and yeah, just getting people to understand it is a visual, you know, sort of uneasy feeling that you have to go through in some ways. Yeah. Mm, yep. Cool. Okay. Well, let me, let me throw another one out there. Um, so this one is one I sort of tell a lot, actually, tell people understand the difference between a storyteller and someone who's not a storyteller as a leader, right? And it was one of those natural experiments that occurred. Um, and I uh, had a phone call from uh, 
a, a customer up in Hong Kong and big professional services organisation. And he said, oh, we had an interesting thing happen just recently. Um, the, we have two CEOs currently and we got the old CEO who's, who's transitioning out of the business and the new CEO and they've got this overlap period so that they can do the handover. And we just had our town hall and, you know, do the big, you know, sort of rah-rah session for the year. And the old experienced CEO stood up in front of, the, this is before pandemics, everyone was in the room, a big, big sort of group. And he just started by saying, so guys, has anyone seen the movie Hidden Figures? And, you know, a bunch of people put their hand up. And it's, it's this movie that was set in the 60s, um, a group of uh, you know, uh, African-American women were employed by NASA to do all the calculations for um, the moonshots, et cetera. And, uh, you know, and, and were treated appallingly back in those days, right? But there was one particular woman who was the head of the pool, you know, of, and they actually called them calculators, right? These, oh, I think they actually called them computers. They called them computers, yeah. Yeah, they called them computers because they were computing the, uh, yeah. you know, the, the calculations. But um, one day at NASA, a new IBM mainframe got rolled in and installed. And she, she saw it and just immediately saw it as a threat. And, but one that she had to work with in some way. So she went down to the library and she uh, got a book out on Fortran, which was the main programming language uh, back then for the mainframes, especially for scientific stuff. Uh, Fortran's the, the way to go. And uh, taught herself Fortran and taught herself how to program on the mainframe, which, by the way, would be no easy feat, I can tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition to that, taught her whole pool of computers how to do it. And they became the first computer programmers that NASA ever had. And, you know, so he tells his story. And then right at the end, he says, uh, so what's our Fortran, right? How are we going to protect ourselves from the threats that we're seeing? And, uh, and then the next CEO got up and he, he was the ex-COO. And he got up and gave help a bunch of slides with, you know, uh, utilization rates and you know year on year and all all, all the classic uh, you know fully fully loaded slide deck yeah, pictures diagrams bullet points lots of bullet probably, points lots of charts I would imagine beautifully presented oh yeah that were you know you know probably a whole little department creating that sort of stuff for him and at the end of the town hall the first CEO was inundated by messages from people saying, look, we've got a team together and uh, we've worked out our Fortran. We think the Fortran is going to be da-da-da-da. And then someone else goes, yeah, well, the, the, the mainframe here is something like this. The big threat, mainframe threat for us is this. And I reckon the Fortran, you know, so it was this flurry of, of yeah, conversation and interaction. And the second CEO got crickets. There was oh, not a sing- that was there was not a single message or anything that came to him, and that was actually when he was talking to his comms people and said, "I, I think I need some assistance with the storytelling." Right, so I think it's a stark contrast, isn't it? When you see that, yeah, it's it's a really good, really good contrast. Yeah, 
And so in, in a way, I, I tell that story and I sort of said, well, you have a choice, you know, you have a choice between, you know, using, it's not like the first guy just told stories, right? But he peppered his presentation with stories like that, in this case from a movie, but, you know, he was adept at telling stories from all sorts of different places. Um, whereas the first guy just didn't even enter his mind that that's something you would do or, you know, uh, until he saw it work so so well for his colleague. Yeah. 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 Now, I just uh, in your story bank, do you, do you remember really at the very, very start of anecdote right. so long ago, it might have even been pre-anecdote when you were speaking at the conference after the IBM Distinguished Engineer. And, oh, yes. Uh, he yeah, was. He was, a ex he was excellent in security or something? Yeah, and he was. He was a distinguished engineer in security. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it. I remember and, it well. And, uh, he, he, yeah. Is that in your story bank? Uh, I don't think it is. I think it's a story I just have in my head. And uh, Yeah. And uh, anyway, it was triggered by the, uh, by the COBOL story. Uh, sorry, the Fortran story. Right, right. And the, 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 the difference, the different effect you have when you're talking to people using story versus when you're using diagrams or bullet points. Yeah. And it also did trigger for me another thing. And that is, um, so I, I started life out as a computer programmer, you know, I worked for Oracle and Sybase and then did a stint with a government agency programming. And my first uh, programming language was Fortran. And one of the jobs that I had that, um, you know, really sticks in my mind is it, it was the really early days of, of spatial information systems and GIS. So we're talking about, you know, the late 80s. And uh, as a young fellow, they said to me, Sean, go and find the algorithms that you use in a GIS. And, you know, that's like point in polygon, you know, is a polygon overlapping another polygon, you know, all these sort of basic algorithms. And, I went to the uh, to the libraries and we can't search the net. I had to go to libraries and just pour through journals and stuff. And I was looking up everything I could think of, you know, GIS and uh, spatial information and algorithms. I couldn't find a thing, right? And it was only when I fell across the term computational geometry that these algorithms just appeared for me. And there they were just written out and, you know, and like really short little algorithms written in Fortran. And I was like a, a hero bringing these things back in, uh, into the organization. Because we use those as the core of this system that essentially managed uh, scientific data sets. It sort of reminds me of this idea that you really got to know the language to be able to find, it's like the key, it's like the, um, the shibboleth. I remember there was a, you know, there was a, an episode in West Wing where they talked about the shibboleth, which is the the key that unlocks and gives you entry. It's the password, right? And um, and I think I found that shibboleth in 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 working out computational geometry. Anyway, I haven't got that in my. I think you're going to have to you're going to have to check out the uh, the the definition of the uh, of the term shibboleth. Really? Um, I think you, there's a, there's a different word you're looking for rather than shibboleth. No, no, shibboleth. It's... Why? What do you think a shibboleth means? A, a shibboleth is a belief that is that that people hang on to, hang on to. It's like a, an untouchable belief. I believe mm. that the world is flat. 
anyway, we'll, we'll talk about mm. that one later. You mean we can't just look it up now? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Go, let's do it. No, 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 let's no. Let's it. keep going. Keep going. Well, maybe we should maybe we should do um, uh, one more one more story for people and and just yeah invite people to go back and re-explore those stories that are in in the podcast. You know, there's a lot there to to discover. And also, one of the great things is, is that when you, as we're doing right now, as you're telling these stories that remind you of other stories, you can get them down yeah. into your story bank and, uh, you know, build it up. Yep. Yeah. So what's now, your... If you what, do find the story, yeah. if, sorry, uh, just if you do find your story about the the uh, IBM Distinguished Engineer that you spoke after, that, that will be useful because I want to put that in my story bank as well. And my, my third one is the Paul Revere story. Ah, and yeah, so right. this is about the value the value of being well connected and the importance of collaboration back in the day paul revere was in his in his kitchen with a bunch of other people and a stable boy comes in and says i've just been at the stable mucking out the uh, the the stables and i heard some british officers saying oh we're going to make them pay hell tomorrow or something like that and for paul revere this was and, and the people with him, they went, the British are going to attack because right. they'd had a whole bunch of other indications. And this was the little, like the straw that broke the camel's back, the, the tipping point. Yep. And they realized that, and so they, what are we going to do? And so they decided they needed to raise the countryside mm -hmm. and get the message out. And so Paul Revere goes out on his famous ride and he rides out and uh, the British are coming, the British are coming. And the, you know, the militia was, and, in, and the British, instead of advancing and meeting scattered resistance, they met an organized force and were defeated in the field. And uh, so, but something else happened on that fateful afternoon and night because, uh, so Paul Revere rode out in one direction and in the other direction out rode a guy called William Dawes. Exactly the same news that he was giving, except when William Dawes knocked on the door, people went, who are you? Um, why would I believe you? Is this is this some sort of joke? And he had so exactly the same. He had so little effect in getting people uh, raising the militia that people thought he must have been a British sympathizer. <laughs> and, and and but what happened in reality was that Paul Revere was just well connected. People knew him, and yeah. because they knew him, they trusted him. And when he said something, they went, "Oh." Well, that Paul Revere, yeah, it's Paul Revere. You know, yeah. we all know Paul Revere. You know, he's, right. you know, and, he's a good guy. And so, yeah. So uh, this whole idea of collaboration, it's not some nice to have. It helps you get stuff done. Yeah. And so. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. I think we've got a few stories in that sort of space, don't we? The ones that show how the yep. importance of uh, networks and and uh, connections able to help you sort of respond to things you can't predict or in this case is a classic example, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah, it's like that, that whole weak signal stuff where if you're well connected, you can actually sense the, the signals and make sense of them and see patterns and yeah, pe people will approach you and give you information. And when you ask for information, they'll give it to you. And when you ask them for something, they'll give it to you. And it's just amazing. So yeah, yeah, you know, I use that uh, use that story a lot. Yeah, no, no it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. And and the thing that I never remember in a story like that is 
the name, you know, I can remember Paul Revere, but I've got to get the other names in my head to be able to make it a, a plausible yeah. story, right? You got to yeah. definitely have to have yeah. some details. So, and and just so I I, I told that from memory, I, I didn't I didn't check before because I thought we're only going to do two, yeah, um, and that was my third. I, I didn't go and do anything, but I know the three names. Uh, uh, sorry, the stable boy, yes, uh, Paul Revere and William Dawes, right. Yeah, I mean, if if I was doing a more detailed telling, I'd I'd have known the the year, the you know the date, uh, the name of the battle, that sort of thing. But you don't need it. Yeah. Um, for me, I just need to know it was a stable boy. It was Paul Revere and William Dawes. Yes, Americans listening to this would all be shaking their head. You don't know the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's a fair it's it's a fair comment, but look, I am just going to fall back on my uh, my standard response, which is, mate, I'm Australian. Yeah, that's right. No one's tested us on those sort of things. Absolutely, yeah. So tell me, just in terms of uh, things that you liked about uh, that you like about the Paul Revere story. Oh well, it's 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 one that I recognise, you know. So it's sort of it's a familiar, right? And and I think that's. And it's got a you know a, a nice point, and I can kind of visualise him running through, riding along. You know, I mean, you've seen that image played out over and over again, you know, uh, on TV, etc. So, um, yeah, but it's not what I. It's not one. It jumps to me to tell, right? I, I wouldn't. Yep. And that's just because it's. I reckon it's just an accidental thing in some ways. Some stories you start telling, and you've told it three or four times, and therefore it becomes a story you can tell. And so you tell it more. It's like a, you know, a, you know a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's an you know important point for for the, those listening to the podcast is that somebody more else might think a story is fantastic, and use it all the time, but a, a, a different person it just doesn't resonate for them, and yeah. so it, it doesn't mean that the story itself isn't so useful. It's just it, it doesn't, and so don't worry too much about it. If, if that Paul Revere story doesn't resonate for you, well, don't worry. There's thousands of stories that will. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I remember Annette Simmons uh, once told me that um, you know if you have a story that doesn't work, right? Don't spend time trying to fix the story. Just get another story, right? Is it like a, there's more stories out there than you could ever, ever, you know, you know, come close to to understanding and, and telling. So, you know, just got to go out and find more stories. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Now, let's wrap it up. Um, I think you had one thing we have to share with everyone. George has said, you know, we've got to make sure we tell everyone about an event, Mark. Well, well, were you going to do a third? No, I wasn't actually. I thought uh, thought that was a no, nice, just, nice, okay. nice period to wrap. Nice, 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 nice little place to wrap. So, in April, we've got another public storytelling for leaders program starting, and so if you're interested in learning how to use this thing called story to be a more impactful, engaging, and maybe even inspiring leader, like the Hidden Figures story, then this is a great way to do it. So the timings for the April workshop are for Europe. So if you're in Europe and APAC, that'll work for you. And if you want more information, our website, www.anecdote.com 
www.ipsos.com forward slash events and you'll find it there. And so all the details are there if you want to go and have a look at the session times. And so it's over. It's, it's a virtual delivery. So it'll be four two-hour sessions with the bridging activities. So, yeah, well, all the information's there if you're interested in having a bit of a look. Fantastic. Right. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening in to our 100th episode. I mean, it's so exciting to think that we've yeah. actually created 100 episodes, anecdotally speaking. But, of course, tune in next week. Tuesday mornings, that's when it hits the, the RSS feeds. And, um, yeah, for another episode of How to Put Your Stories to Work. Bye for now. Anecdotally Speaking was engineered by Dave Stokes from Author to Audio.